China's authoritarianism has fully expanded into the digital space. In this episode, the Global Reporting Center's Melissa Chan, Axios China reporter Bethany Allen Abrahamian, New York Times Asia Technology correspondent Paul Moser, Hoover Institution's research fellow Glenn Tiffert, and China Digital Times editor-in-chief Xiao Cheng discuss and examine Chinese state-sponsored applications and Chinese commercial services. To what extent is AI being used inside China today? Welcome to Dissidents and Dictators, a series of conversations by the Human Rights Foundation dedicated to exposing and challenging authoritarianism around the world. This conversation was part of a four-part series presented in partnership with the Human Rights Foundation, Stanford University's Global Digital Policy Incubator, the Hoover Institution, and the Stanford Institute for Human-Centered Artificial Intelligence. Welcome everyone to the panel and our title is How AI is Powering China's Domestic Surveillance State and we have a fantastic group of panelists to discuss this. I'm going to start with some introductions to each and every one of you. Uh, we have Bethany Allen Ibrahimian, who is the China reporter at Axios. Previously, she led the China Cables Project with the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, which revealed the inner workings of mass internment camps in Xinjiang. And she is writing a book about China for HarperCollins due out in 2022, which I'm absolutely excited uh, to read when it comes out. We also have Paul Mozer, who is Asia Technology Correspondent at the New York Times. He's based in Taipei these days, and uh, he was unfortunately one of the journalists recently uh, kicked out of China. And he's been based in Asia for more than a decade and was previously with the Wall Street Journal and has been twice named as a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. And I also had the pleasure of working with him on a New York Times project looking at the export of uh, video surveillance technology to Ecuador and looking at China's involvement in different developing countries. We also have Xiao Qiang, who is the founder and editor-in-chief of China Digital Times, uh, which is a resource I highly recommend and which I, along with many other uh, current and former China correspondents, have used over the years. And he is also associated with the School of Information at the University of California, Berkeley. And we have Glenn Tiffert, who... Uh, spoke earlier, if you missed a little bit of what he said, he is a research fellow at Stanford's Hoover Institution where he manages the Hoover projects on China's global sharp power. And he also studies Taiwan. Uh, he studies authoritarian interference and serves on the executive committee of the Academic Security and Counter-Exploitation Program, which aims to heighten security awareness in academia. Uh, you already know who I am. Just a little bit more. I was a journalist formerly based in China at a time when Google was still China's number one search engine, which uh, I remember. And I also remember the moment when Google was blocked. And all of that feels pretty quaint these days compared to what we're seeing us uh, it, happening in China today. Wow. So you can join this conversation. Once again, a reminder, you can submit your questions and you can upvote questions that others have posted that you think are important and we'll try to get to as many as possible. And I'll be checking um, throughout to look for those questions. 
So each and every one of the panelists are going to deliver some introductory remarks. And I think um, we had a little internal discussion and uh, it'd be great to have Xiao start if he's ready. Thank you, Melissa. And uh, this is a wonderful opportunity for all of us to pause and think about how AI is powering China's domestic surveillance state. I'm gonna start from what happened since Xi Jinping come to power. And I'm gonna ignore, not ignore, but I'm just gonna pass all the data, uh, you know, the details, just to say that from 2013 until now, Xi Jinping's regime you know, became uh, so strong that pervasive censorship gaining almost full control of online political discourse and made online monitoring and surveillance endemic. Something I didn't know that Chinese government can do. But there's something else happened in the past few years Xi Jinping encountered, which is the growth of the big data, 5G, AI, cloud computing, and China's digital economy. In 19, no, 2019, China's digital economy has valued added 35.1 trillion yuan, accounting for 36% of China's GDP. That's a lot. And the top powerful private companies are shaping realities like Google, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and three out of seven are Chinese too, Tengxun, Baidu, Alibaba. So Xi Jinping's leadership has enthusiastically embraced the AI technology, right? It is born in free societies, but now particularly thrived in the authoritarian states like China. Why? because big data is new oil. The oil plus uh, data plus AI is new form of ruling power. And artificial intelligence offers the possibility of centralized analysis of huge quantities of data, allowing the recognition of patterns and the deviations and the systems of centralized regulation all without active human participation by a state apparatus, apparatus and big corporation can do that. So it is a perfect instrument in the hands of Communist Party. But think about the data, right? We can think about all the transaction data, ERP, uh, you know, electronic comments. We can think of all the interactive data, WeChat, Weibo, instant messengers. We can think of all the transitional data, like GPS, RFID. Particularly, we have to think about all the government data in China. The government has the most complete core data of the uh, industries, the business, the taxes, your electricity bills, your social security, everything. And the big data enables prediction of human responses and the future. Therefore, it can be manipulated accordingly. And the big data 
and AI generate knowledge that enabling the ruling power. So that is what we are facing, right? AI enabling control, surveillance, manipulation with ease and scale that we have never seen before. So by this, the Chinese government is creating a 360 degree view of the entire population, every one of them. Well, if you are offline, you're not digital connected, well, you don't even count. But when you're walking on the street, the cameras with facial recognition capacity still focusing on you. There's a project called Skynight, the project called Sharp Eyes, right? So by the time in a few years, China has nearly 300 million cameras. So every Chinese citizen has two cameras focusing on them. And facial recognition as a powerful AI technology is now in the hand of certain rulers and it is being used to combine those camera data. I haven't even talked about the Corona 19, uh, COVID-19, the health code that Chinese citizens, the, 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 the cell phone app installs health code, which is a QR code, very effectively help the Chinese government to put the uh, uh, pandemic under control. It's very instrumental, but there's also a fear that this house code collects so much private information of each Chinese citizens now stay on their cell phones and the similar code becoming something else. Chinese government has social service, social governance. And there is some city like Suzhou in September 6, putting out something called civility code, which is now trying to count, track citizens, their bad deeds, uh, running red lights, doing volunteer work, allow privileges accordingly. I mean, under the Chinese population's outcry on this particular civility code, it's offline now. But the tendency is still there in many, many government parts. I'm going to spend a few minutes talking about China's social credit system, because that's essential for us to understand the logic of this digital reality, not only in China, entire world, in this society, right, in America, in Europe, in many places we're facing. But in China, as a, my previous speaker, uh, Professor Condoleezza, uh, saying that this is different in the hands of authoritarian regime. And social credit system is that, right? It's a coordinated administrative system which feed the data from different government sources, has the ability to sanction and to publicly shame individuals. Then in the new decade, it may bring further advancement of system through the enhanced technology integration of the data. It's, it's a, uh, at a upgraded national social credit platform that could make personal evaluations and punishment even more pervasive such a system could additionally encourage individuals to model their behavior along the lines of the conduct prescribed by the Chinese Communist Party. And there is a new word emerging that in the Chinese sort of think tank political policy document, it's called a digital persona, su zhi ren ge, su zi ren ge, right? Digital persona. Digital persona profiles generate digital model of an image from the credit data of a citizen. It's not your physical person now, but it's under form the base 
of algorithmic ratings. So in the Chinese government own word, the social credit system aims to use big data, data analysis, artificial intelligence, and machine learning to develop a data-driven comprehensive governing structure around algorithms to generate real-time rewards and punishment for legal, economic, social, and other behaviors. And this is a new trend of algorithmic governance. Wow. China's current situation is not there yet, but the vision is clear. But let's think about it. In even our, in our own life, right, social media, the credit bureaus, the pharmacies, the courthouses, shopping websites, how many data we have a digital trace in the hands of the companies. But what about those companies also under the full control of the Chinese government have to share those data with the government. And government has so much data with each one of you already. This is an incredible form of potentiality for everyone, but it's also who control it, control your fate, control your chance of life, life chances, and it's a new form of ruling power. Well, um, there's many ways to look at this new form of power, right? Think of your social credit score. It has a dimension of your health, has a dimension of your social media, social networks, has a dimension of your financial transactions, and could have a dimension of many, many other things, like your travel and everything else, mobility. Um, They're all embodied, right? As, as a philosopher will say, it's all about you. Express something durable about yourself, your fitness, your sociability, your social influence, your character, right? But it's also objective, right? It's, it's a data, it's come up from your behavior, it's some kind of, uh, as a sociologist will say, objectified. And it's institutionalized, as a political scientist will say, right? It's existing not only from the one place, but it's from insurance, from your credit union, but it also can circulate to your dating website. Now in the government from one province to another province, from your village into all the way to the central uh, cities. And that is an incredible power that have the Chinese government potentially have over every Chinese citizens. Right? Think about the totality of it. Right? Think of the let's say the difference between our credit score, because China's social credit system has this large scale, all-encompassing, and a state ownership of your data, and it covers market, society, government, law, everything else. The totality of it is what's striking. It's also very hard to contest politically because it's a micro-targeted, it's graded data, uh, it's no categories of choices. And it seems like it cannot like, you know, trade a union or, or something to develop politics. Not as in China today, you can develop other kind of politics. But with this kind of credit card, uh, score, it's particularly difficult. And even more so, the outcome appears legitimate, right? It's only the behavior differences is because your own act causing your own grading. It sounds like even morally legitimate, legitimate. And that's why the Chinese government promoting seemingly is increasing of social trust. And many Chinese people accept that. And that form of legitimacy, it's really important for the Chinese Communist Party to have over the Chinese people. So now let's go to from the Chinese Communist Party 
why social security system as an idea, as a potential, it's so important because it's a gateway, it's a central hub of China's digital totalitarianism. I'm going to use the word totalitarianism. I, know I, want to talk, I want to talk about that, actually. I, I, I want to make sure that everyone on the panel, actually, in the Q&A section, that's actually my first question for you guys, is about totalitarianism versus authoritarianism. Sorry, I just had to interject there. Sure. And the totalitarian state recognizes no limits as, as an authority of any sphere of public and private life, right? That's a classic definition. Seeks to extend the authority to whatever lenses it can. Hannah Arendt, the, uh, in the classical definition, will say the totalitarianism of the total unlimited power. Right? It's the kind of power demands everybody's dominated in every aspect of their life. But I just described our digital trace today, so-called digital personnel, is reflecting every aspect of our life, our personal behaviors, our social interactions, our financial transactions record, everything. And if a authoritarian government get a hold of those data and not only can you still control you, but you can you know, uh, motivate you, connect your behavior and can punish you. Well, that is the totality of a totalitarianism, right? So let's put it this way. The greatest obstacle to this totalitarianism ambition is human beings are unpredictable. We are spontaneous, we're creative, we have a freedom, but if those things are being eliminated and there's a new form of digital technology and produce some kind of predictable subjects, then we are being reduced to a bundle of conditioned reflexes that are controllable by some kind of a stimuli and provided by, in this case, not only the corporations and the state and predict prediction to power. If we're able to predict the future, we're make, able to influence and change it. And that power now is in the Chinese government. I'm gonna say two words and then I'm gonna stop here. One is another word, it's going to be in the Chinese foreign policy document. It's not there yet, but well, let's watch. It's called Suan Fa Xing Zheng, governance aiming to guide, influence people's behavior, identify, classify, sort, and control. That's in the, some Chinese policy researchers' own words. In their own words, it's called scientific means of naturalizing social members. And that's digital engineering. That's digital totalitarianism. If you combine that with Xi Jinping's China dream, which is the individual well-being it's also depend on the state greatness. And that's, and the state greatness is the rejuvenation of the Chinese civilization over the world. Well, that China's dream is Chinese people's nightmare and it's a nightmare of all the freedom loving people in the world. So while the AI makes the authoritarian regimes stronger, because it's possible to process enormous amount of information centrally, and it makes a centralized system far more efficient than diffuse systems, because machine learning works better than the machines has more information to analyze. Well, now the main handicap 
of the authoritarian regime in the 21st century and in the 20th century, last century, the desire to concentrate all information and power in one place now become a decisive advantage in the 21st century. So let me just end to say, all freedom-loving societies must counter the global advance of Chinese digital totalitarianism. And I'm looking forward to my co-panelists. Thank you. Thank you so much, Xiao. Um, and you spoke in big general terms, which is why I actually want to go to Bethany next, because you're going to take it down to a more specific level in terms of how this actually works. Yes, um, thank you, Melissa. Can, can you hear me? Yes, great, okay. Uh, so today I am going to talk about something called IJOP. It's the Integrated Joint Operations Platform. IJOP is a massive data collection and analysis system that is used by public security bureaus in Xinjiang to select residents for investigation and detention. It's a tool that Chinese authorities have constructed to assist them in their campaign of mass detention, high-tech surveillance, and cultural genocide against ethnic minorities in Xinjiang. IJOP is, at least aspirationally, a pre-crime platform that facilitates what I have called arrest by algorithm. Chinese government personnel collect vast amounts of personal information on citizens from a range of sources and feed this data into IJOP, which then formulates lengthy lists of so-called suspicious persons based on this data. IJOP functions both as a basic database that you can put new information into and that you can make queries of, and as a kind of automatic alert system that flags people based on certain criteria. IJOP connects to an app on the phones of public security officers. Police can use this app to run background checks and to communicate with IJOP in real time. According to a report by Human Rights Watch, the sources for some of the data that has been put into IJOP include Xinjiang's checkpoints, it's many checkpoints, closed circuit cameras with facial recognition, spyware that the police require some Uyghurs to install in their phones, Wi-Fi sniffers that collect identifying information of smartphones and computers, and even package deliveries. Human Rights Watch obtained a copy of the IJOP mobile app and reverse engineered it to learn how it is used by police and what data it collects. The group found that the app prompts police officers to enter detailed information about everyone they interrogate, height, blood type, license plate, education level, profession, recent travel, household electric meter readings, and much more. Now, to be clear, we have a somewhat limited amount of information about how this app is actually used. These are potential capabilities in the app that were you know, discovered through reverse engineering. Human Rights Watch did, did speak with interview some people who had witnessed the app being used. But just because these are potential things, potential capabilities it has or potential um, you know, features it has doesn't necessarily mean that they are being used or that they are very functional. 
I previously led a project, um, as Melissa mentioned, uh, at, at the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. We obtained several classified Chinese government documents that revealed some of the daily behind the scenes operations of IJOP. These documents also showed some other kinds of data that had been collected and put into the system, including from an app called Zapia, which is a mobile file sharing application developed by a Beijing-based startup that has a Silicon Valley partner uh, that encourages users to download the Quran and share religious teachings with loved, loved ones. We don't know how um, IJOP was able to access the data from the app Zapia. Um, the documents also point to the role of China's embassies and consulates in collecting information for IJOP, which has been used to generate names for investigation and detention. It cites an IJOP-generated list of 4,341 people found to have applied for visas, other documents at Chinese consulates or who applied for replacements of valid identification at our Chinese embassies or, embassies or consulates abroad. So that's a quote from the documents. The, the bulletin includes instructions for those people to be investigated and arrested, quote, the moment they cross the border back into China. So some of this is clearly analog. It's not, you know, this is just where the data is coming from, not necessarily, you know, all of it's something that you would need an AI capability to deal with. Uh, police officers receive push notifications with people's names who have been flagged for investigation. Um, and these, this, this is the people whose names are flagged. They're called which I thought was an incredibly Orwellian just phrase, you know, push notification people. These are people who end up in detention camps. Um, perhaps even more significant than the actual data collected are the grinding psychological effects of living under this kind of system. I mean, it, it flags, you know, ordinary activities uh, based on stuff like daily prayer, travel abroad, or using the back door of your home too much with batteries of facial recognition cameras on street corners, endless checkpoints, webs of informants, IJOP generates a sense of an omniscient, omnipresent state that can peer into the most intimate aspects of daily life to the point about totalitarianism. I don't know of anything that's more totalitarian than that. As neighbors disappear based on the workings of unknown algorithms, Xinjiang lives in a perpetual state of terror. The seeming randomness of investigations resulting from IJOP isn't a bug, but a feature. You know, Samantha Hoffman, who's an analyst at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, described it like, to, like this. She said, that's how state terror works. Part of the fear that this instills is that you don't know when you're not okay. I'll never forget one sentence that I read in one of these documents. Um, and it provided instructions on how to conduct mass investigations and detentions um, after IJOP has generated a lengthy list of suspects. And here's the, the sentence from my memory. In the period of one week in June, 2017, IJOP produced 24,412 names of suspicious persons. Security officials in various localities in Xinjiang rounded up 15,683 Xinjiang residents and placed them in internment camps. It's a sentence, 15,683 names, 15,683 human beings whose lives were disrupted and perhaps ruined because of an unknown criteria written into an algorithm. And I remember sitting for, I mean, hours thinking about that sentence and thinking about the lives. I don't know their names and I don't know if we ever will. That was, that was one week 
in 2017, three years ago. Has this been happening every week? And you know, the rest of that document, it was about a page and a half, was dedicated not to this discussion of like finding out if they'd actually done something wrong, but to why they had not been able to detain the other 8,000 names, the other 8,000 people, because the, 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 the list produced was 24,412 names. And they were like, why didn't we get more of them? That's what this was. There's a lot we don't yet know about IJOP. The information we have is based on leaked classified Chinese government documents and from open source information gleaned from local Chinese government websites and other sources around 2018 and some interviews from that time. The Chinese government has become a lot more careful about what it posts online and it's harder than ever for foreign correspondents to report from Xinjiang. As of 2018, the platform seemed to be using pretty basic algorithms to sort through the data. Its use of artificial intelligence is at best aspirational. It's a blunt instrument. But IJOP clearly fits within the Chinese government's goals to use mass data collection as part of its policing and governance model, which requires the development of artificial intelligence to effectively analyze and draw conclusions from mass data. And just one more point I want to add, it is not that the Chinese government is pioneering this type of program. There's one active right now in Florida now it's different. I mean, you know, I, I do not mean to draw false um, analogies between, you know, what one police department in Florida is trying very badly to do involving junk science and, you know, what Xinjiang is doing. However, the point is, is that, you know, this, this is something that everyone in the world is, is dealing with or is going to have to deal with. But the Chinese government, because of the nature of the regime, and the inability of citizens to push back can go faster and take it further with greater um, harm to humanity than most other governments can. That echoes what Secretary Rice was saying about the difference um, is that there can be a conversation to be had in, in democracies that authoritarian states do not have. Um, Bethany gave us a specific example. Xiao sort of set things up. Glenn, give us some context and take us forward. Thank you, Melissa. Thank you, Bethany and Xiao. Um, by most accounts, the Chinese government has the most sophisticated apparatus of censorship and surveillance on the planet, and AI figures prominently in that. Most discussions of that censorship focus on its application to discrete contemporary events, especially as reflected in social media. But the Chinese government's goals are, in fact, far more ambitious. If I can be metaphorical for a moment, it is in a constant battle against nature, obsessively plucking weeds and eradicating pests to cultivate its own perfect garden. And we on the outside tend to focus on what or who has been silenced or erased in that effort. But the flip side deserves equal attention because very often something deliberate is simultaneously being amplified or built. To illustrate what I mean, let me start with an analog example from popular culture. We know that the character of Mulan is Han Chinese, at least the film version is, but it is surely one of history's cruel ironies that the earliest known version of her story characterizes her and the regime that she fought for as belonging to a people descended from the steppes of Central Asia. Try to make that movie in present day China and see how far you get. Such a movie would sabotage Xi Jinping's Han-centric policies of ethnic assimilation, his deracinated notion of what it means to be Chinese, and his sense of where the historic boundaries of China actually lay. 
But he need not face that challenge because the story of Mulan was synthesized centuries ago, so long ago, in fact, that most have forgotten who she might have been, to the point that the story has most recently been flipped into a modish epic of Han nationalist triumph over evil barbarians at the gates. And for Xi's China, that is useful. Problem solved. The more that we dig into China's past, the more that we discover such inversions. Official dynastic histories depict a well-ordered society governed by Confucian morality. Why? Because that image of harmony served the ideological and political interests of the imperial state and its elites. Until quite recently, historians had accepted that as conventional wisdom. Then scholars gained access to Chinese archives where we discovered a routine uh, in the routine paperwork generated by the imperial state and other reality altogether. A litigious world with rife with conflicts and transgressive and licentious behaviors that would make a sailor blush. The survival of those records and our access to them a century or more later exploded the myth. Now, of course, all nations have myths that mask unpleasant truths, and the United States is certainly no exception to that rule. But in China, you get whiplash trying to keep up, and technology is transforming the game. About 20 years ago, liberal Chinese legal scholars rediscovered a brilliant jurist from the middle of the 20th century, a 1935 graduate of Harvard Law School named Yang Jiaolong. For them, he was a homegrown hero and an inspiration because he belied the Communist Party's canard that rule of law, as you and I understand it, has no roots in China. And his 12-year imprisonment as a counter-revolutionary indicated that responsibility for the rule of law's unhappy fate in the PRC instead lay with Maoist repression. Young's collected writings were posthumously republished. Conferences were held in his honor and surviving family and associates issued fulsome tributes. Then the political wind shifted just as digitization was taking off. Digitization is a game changer in this regard because censors no longer need to sift through mountains of paper physically dispersed across countless libraries and collections to reinvent historical narratives. Libraries are voluntarily trading the analog volumes in their stacks for convenient digital facsimiles delivered from distant servers along centralized distribution chains. And the authorities who control these servers can silently manipulate that knowledge base at its source without ever leaving their desks, making one alteration after another, each with the potential to propagate instantaneously around the globe. It is the stuff of Orwell's fantasies. Now, what does this have to do with Yang Zhaolong and the story about the rule of law that Xi Jinping's China would like to tell? If you had access to original paper copies of the right Chinese publications from the late 1950s, then you would know that Yang was a key player in a fierce battle over the future of China's legal system and the extent of direct party control over it. Should it follow the professionalizing technocratic trends that emergent in post-Stalinist post Russia or embrace the revolutionary spasms exemplified by the Cultural Revolution? If you can get to the paper, you will find a rich documentary record of the party in that period denouncing as abominations the rule of law and all of the institutions and bodies of knowledge that we associate with it. However, that poses an awkward problem today for a Chinese Communist Party that has since codified an idiosyncratic reference to the rule of law in China's constitution. Other governments might say, oops, we made a mistake and we fixed it. But in China, the party can never be wrong about something so fundamental. And so it has made the awkward bits, the discordant notes disappear. And they have done that. 
Log into the online platforms hosted in China that carry these primary sources, and you would never know that the party deliberately crushed an alternative to the murderous path that China ultimately took, or that publications, or that the publications in question had ever existed, because sanitized digital versions of them are the only copies that most scholars around the world have access to now. And in that sense, these platforms are helping the party to globalize its lies. All that remains are the fragmentary bits that today's China can assemble into a legitimating backstory. You won't find much in the archives anymore either because many of the relevant paper sources that were accessible a decade ago have been withdrawn. Now I've used machine learning to reverse engineer the censorship model that they're using. And at least in this domain, I can replicate their results very reliably. This isn't crude keyword searching. They know exactly what they're doing, making smart choices with a fairly fine degree of discrimination. It's not unlike what they're doing in the domain of social media. There are other examples I could cite, but you get the point and the march of time will only intensify this trend. The progressive digitization of China's information space gives those who control it unfettered opportunity, not just to control data, but also the meaning that people construct from that data. Just this year, we've seen how that can unfold in real time. Eventually, COVID-19 and the suffering it has caused will fade into the past, but the Chinese government's efforts to control the narrative about the pandemic will linger in the source space and memorialize a very selective version of events for posterity. As recollections fade, those sanitized and falsified fragments will mature into the myths that inform how people understand their present and imagine their futures. Lenin famously remarked that communism is Soviet power plus electrification. For Xi, the key is informatization. He is counting on it to continually refresh the foundations of his rule. Reduced to endlessly pliable bitstreams, China's century of humiliation, the Tiananmen massacre, the cultural revolution, the great leap forward, and the tragic death earlier this year of Wuhan doctor Li Wenyang are all clay to reshape according to the mercurial requirements of the moment. And the growing reliance of outside observers to data products hosted in China means that we too are increasingly subject to those whims. AI is helping the party to dynamically corrupt our information space and the knowledge we derive from it, especially as pertains to China, with unprecedented ease and at, at unprecedented scale. And this will have lasting consequences. It's garbage in, garbage out at the speed of the network. So over to you, Paul. Paul, over to you. Um, I think, uh, Glenn, uh, just to um, underscore something, you were talking about the power of digitization. Uh, Xiao also said uh, the catchy phrase, big data is new oil, which I actually wrote down. Uh, Paul, you were most recently of, of everyone here in China. Tell us what uh, what you would, whatever you would like to say, actually. Some great presentations, uh, a little bit bleak, I'm afraid for an early morning, but I'll keep in that tone. Um, I think I'm going to try and talk a little bit about the norm setting and the ways that um, some of these systems can impact um, people's lives outside of China. Um, so, you know, one of the things we hear a lot about is this sort of AI race. And, you know, I get a qu questions a lot about who's ahead, China or the United States, who will win in the end. And I don't think that's the right way to think about it. I think the way to think about it is that China is now on a stage uh, with a sort of large group of kind of leading players. And, uh, you know, it's kind of the first time we've seen a deeply country at that kind of cutting edge um, in probably 20, 30 years. For a long time, we've seen um, 
you know, the Asian tigers and, you know, European democracies, North America, Australia, as the kind of trendsetters in that space. And, and this is extremely important because if you're the ones creating the new technology, you're able to dictate the use. Um, you know, we talk about technology being neutral, it is. And so as you create it, the immediate applications you design it for are the kind of ways that it goes out into the world and spreads. Um, and so one of this is interesting because some of the most important achievements China has made in digital authoritarianism to this point are things that you can do with very readily available technology. Um, I think probably the most innovative accomplishment uh, of probably you know to, to come out of China period is the Great Firewall. Um, you know this kind of catch-all that we use to describe the censorship and surveillance uh, within the country. Um, but the idea that you could actually control the internet, the idea that you could actually massively wipe out and expunge millions of people's comments about regular things and preside over a filter bubble that exists on a national scale and is so pumped with propaganda that you can actually stoke your own sort of weather system of nationalism uh, is just an absolutely monstrous achievement and one that uh, I don't think anybody really thought was possible. And what made this possible was not any particularly sophisticated technology, but simply political will, uh, the opacity to kind of do it behind closed doors and the lack of a need for consent. So authoritarianism at its core enables these kinds of innovative uses of already available technology. Um, and I think, you know, one, I, I used to see this all the time at the tech conferences I would go to in China. And I went to one in Urumqi uh, last year in Xinjiang where uh, a guy was selling a, um, it was this company that was selling a prison bed that was a smart prison bed. And so what they had done is they had taken a bunch of sensors and lined the inside of a mattress and the idea was that it could register the heart rate of prisoners um, as they slept. And you could then take that information and kind of figure out what the, what the regular heart rate was of each prisoner. If the heart rate sort of goes up, you know they're awake. Uh, if the heart rate ceases altogether, you know there's some kind of problem. You know, no more digging out of a prison with a spoon at night. You know, I mean, this is sort of <laughs> next level stuff. And, you know, I don't know that it was necessarily bought. It probably will be bought someday. Um, but the point is, if you sort of brought that out and trotted it out in, in a in, in a democracy or in a place where there is transparency, uh, you would probably be shamed out of abandoning that product or certainly there would be inquests into it. But in China, you don't learn about these things. Uh, you just don't hear it. Um, and so a lot of times we kind of see them blazing their own path ahead ethically with technology that's already around. Um, and so you don't have to be sort of building the next um, iPhone or you don't even have to have the fastest supercomputer. You don't have to have the quickest algorithm, even if you lag a little bit, there's still tremendous amounts you can do. And as you set those new sort of uh, ethical precedents, there are plenty of countries that will follow along with you. Um, and so one of the one of the stories I did last year that I think kind of points to this most sharply uh, is the way that um, Chinese police starting in around 2017, 2018 began to use facial recognition to automate the ident identification of ethnic minorities. Um, so in, in the West and in, in, in a lot of places, there were discussions about unintentional bias in AI systems, right? So this is the idea that because you trained your AI system on a bunch of white guys, you're really bad at identifying, um, you know, say, East Asian women, and therefore um, your system will not do as well and will have all these biases baked in. That was the kind of level of discussion and concern uh, in, in the United States, for instance. Uh, meanwhile, what China, uh, what the Chinese police were doing was actively saying, uh, to their companies, build us an algorithm that every time it sees an ethnic minority Uyghur will tell us that there's a Uyghur walking by that camera and just keep following that person and, and we'll see where they go. But but we want to know. 
And, and, and so common was that, that it became sort of just commonplace. There are a couple of different ways of referring to it. Um, you know, Han Chinese, non-Han Chinese was one kind of euphemism for it, um, or Han identification or minority identification. And these became so popular that, you know, it was spread throughout, it was pervasive in the procurement documents, um, you know, over several years. But the thing is, we didn't realize that this was happening. You know, I, I'm, I'm a journalist living in China who covers this stuff very, very closely. They were doing this for about two years before we even realized it was happening. And the only way we realized it was happening is because we actually started, uh, built kind of a search engine that allowed us to search uh, through the back end of the Chinese internet for databases that were left open and, and dig up a bunch of surveillance databases that were active or test, test databases and analyze them. Um, and when we went through them, we saw in the code, sure enough, Uyghur, not Uyghur, you know, and, and that was there next to color of shirt. You know, is this person wearing glasses? Is this person wearing a hat? And then you see minority or not minority, um, you know, and so seeing it in, the, in those sort of stark terms made, made us sort of realize, oh, wow, what is this? Um, and then when we went back, we were able to kind of sort of through open searches of procurement documents and other things build out and realize that, oh, my God, this has been going on for years and nobody had even really understood it. The whole the whole rest of the world is debating the sort of ethics of how well you're training your algorithms. And China's just trained it for one of the most nefarious purposes you could possibly imagine, which is literally to automate um, sort of ethnic profiling. Um, so that, I think that was a really interesting moment. And what I began to hear as I was reporting on that is that some of the Chinese companies uh, were actually already talking about selling this stuff overseas. Um, and, and so they had actually had a few offers from the Middle East and elsewhere. And they're very quickly building out, um, you know, sort of headquarters in, in different places around the world trying to sell this technology. Um, now, what's interesting about it is uh, when we sort of reported on this, a lot of, a lot of what we heard is actually the technology isn't really good enough yet. And it's interesting because we build up and we talk about China's um, surveillance state as this incredibly capable kind of sophisticated thing. But in reality, it really isn't there yet. And, and one of the reasons is because, um, you know, authoritarianism doesn't really have the accountability that it takes to be iterative and get better uh, at certain types of technology, right? So, so the IJOP system, which Bethany so chillingly talked about, that system is not actually doing a good job of telling you who might turn out in the streets and be your political opponent. What it's doing is just flat out oppressing people for arbitrary reasons. What a uh, sort of you know automated ethnic recognition pl platform is doing is the same exact thing. It's just putting people into broad, crude buckets using very advanced technology to do it and doing it very stupidly, right? I mean, it's not actually coming. If you are the Communist Party and you want to hold on to power and be sophisticated about it, the way you do that is to build an engine that is truly predictive and understanding of what people are doing. Yet when we see it being used in regular sort of day-to-day -day, uh, actions in China, it's not really doing that. It's quite crude and, and it kind of reflects the uh, abuse and stereotypes that are kind of inherent in the, in the politics that designed it, if that makes sense. Um, and so when these things do get exported and, and AI itself, you know, we're, we're only at the very, very beginnings of seeing real AI systems exported. But what I'll talk about really quickly is Melissa, what we, you know, the trip we went on to Ecuador, where what happened was in Ecuador, um, uh, the government bought a basically large system of cameras, right? So thousands and thousands of cameras that they could spread out across their country and use to, to watch people. Um, and this is sort of modeled off of what Ecuadorian leaders saw at the Beijing Olympics in 2008. They went to Beijing and they said, oh my gosh, this is amazing. You can, you can watch everybody in the capital and you know exactly what's going on. We want this. So they buy it, they bring it to Ecuador, they spread it around, they install it, and they have these large kind of control rooms where they have dozens and dozens of almost always only men watching cameras and just spying on people across the country. 
Now, so Ecuador has, has a major crime problem. Um, and so the idea you would think is if you put up cameras everywhere, that would be very effective at dousing crime. But in reality, because this was a system designed for surveillance and designed for the sort of autocratic ends within China, that's not actually why it was made. And, 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 and a lot of times Chinese leaders will talk about sort of ending crime with these surveillance systems. But when you actually sort of break into it and see how they're used and how they work, that's rarely the actual logic. And so what the system did is, um, you know, it gave them 10,000 feeds from all the streets of, you know, plenty of streets across Ecuador. But they were unable to act on any of it because there was no actual intelligent response to flag that something bad was happening. So you'd get all this stuff coming in and they couldn't do anything about the crime crime problems. It didn't really help. And you would ask random Ecuadorians about the cameras and they laugh and they say, oh, they don't do anything. I got mugged in front of one. Um, you know, horrible things happened in front of these cameras and police never even went back to check the footage later. Um, often it had been deleted before the report surfaced up to the top. But what it was effective at doing is they were able to put cameras in front of political opponents um, of Korea, the, the leader at the time. And, and so in doing that, it's much, much better because what you can do is if you have 12 people you want to spy on, that's much easier than looking out for, for muggings and, 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 you know, shootings in a, in a city of several million. If you have 12 people, you put those cameras on those 12 people, you have those guys in the control room watch those 12 people, and then when they move, you follow them on the cameras. So, so the system was very effective at following and intimidating political opponents of the government, even as it was utterly ineffective at stopping crime, which was what it was sold to do. Now, the government used it that way, and what was interesting is the people didn't sort of fully understand that. So when you'd actually go talk to local political leaders, even though they knew that these cameras were ineffective, because the genie sort of was out of the bottle and the idea of mass surveillance, the promises that it offered was there, they said, well, okay, yeah, I was mugged in front of a camera, sure. But like, if we build more cameras and we make a system that's more responsive, maybe that will solve the problem. Uh, you know, instead of say training police better, getting more police, like having them respond in a meaningful way to crimes. Uh, all, all these, you know, ending the corruption in the system that was stopping them sort of from responding in the first place. So all these other easy, low-hanging fruit fixes that you would imagine get sort of this big old technology band-aid, and and regular people see it and they kind of just double down on the idea because it's there and because it's easy to kind of have a solutionist outlook to things. Um, and so China sells that oftentimes, uh, and and usually what you actually get after it's sold is something very different from what you hear about and what it seems to be. And so the actual impact of this technology around the world is far more complicated um, and, and nuanced and different to, you know, specific to each different place that it goes. Um, and, and so I think that's a really interesting and important thing to bear in mind. But in, you know, Ecuador's case, for instance, this was a, a struggling democracy. And of course, the sale of this Chinese technology strengthened a populist uh, strongman. And, and that's the kind of thing I think that we're going to see more of, and we are already sort of starting to see. Um, so, yeah, so in the end, I think that, that ultimately that is the way things are going. And, and one final point is that, um, you know, about this kind of, the, the, the Chinese outlook, the Chinese government outlook on this is kind of surveillance for surveillance's sake. So um, Xinjiang is a very specific uh, example, and it's, and it's much more intense there. The surveillance and the repression is much more intense. But in other parts of China where they have to deal with a, a, you know, a richer elite who will, will react negatively to too many cameras or too forceful you know, an intervention in people's day-to-day -day lives, um, we see kind of a, a quieter buildup of capabilities but not necessarily those capabilities being used in any way. So what we see is surveillance for surveillance's sake, more cameras and more feeds than you could possibly know what to do with, more data than you know what to do with, 
uh, and no real logic for what you will do with it in the end, just kind of this hope in the long run that th there will be a way to use it. And that's sort of where China is at the moment. I almost think of it as like a, 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 a moonshot or a boondoggle uh, of data collection because they're gathering all this data, but they don't really know necessarily what to do with it. And I'm not sure they even have the capabilities to fully analyze it or use it. Oftentimes it's not very well labeled, other issues like that. So so that's to say that that that, that while they're doing all this and building up all these products, they're creating these things that there's no demand for. Nobody in the world wants, you know, 20 cameras on each block of their street, yet they're building that reality. And, and at some point, we are going to cross a threshold where they are able, where computer technology, commercial technology is going to be able to do right. something with this stuff. And when we hit that point, things are going to change a lot. And China's going to be sitting on what is ultimately more like a, a weapon than like a, a sort of technology as we conventionally think of it, because it will be the gateway to true techno totalitarianism. And that's the thing that I kind of worry about in the longer term. Well, you know, you that's fantastic. You end on your last sentence with totalitarianism. There have been, I've been looking at the questions. There are some fantastic questions from people who are tuning in. So I want to actually go to them. I originally had the idea of having moderators privileged to ask a question that you guys could discuss, but I'm just going to just say that the question was to think what, what you guys thought about whether, you know, Glenn and, and, um, Glenn especially was talking about reframing and uh, the way we think about things. Um, to what extent is the, the, the very title of this conference, the rise of digital authoritarianism, inappropriate when we are talking about China, when you have had like so many of you guys in the last hour mentioned the word totalitarianism instead. Um, and I'm reminded of um, Tang Biao, the Chinese legal scholar who is now in exile in the United States, where he's made the argument um, that uh, it should be totalitarianism and not authoritarianism as the term that we use when we talk about China. Uh, precisely the distinction he made was that um, of the pervasiveness of the invasion and intrusion into people's private lives, right? Um, so that's something that I think, um, instead of asking you guys a question, maybe just think about that uh, duality and, and uh, maybe at the end, um, perhaps as a final ender, people can, you guys can weigh in on, on where you feel is headed or where it is. Um, but I'm actually going to go straight to the questions because they were so um, fantastic. Uh, and I want to actually start with um, an interesting one, which is who is the who is the People's Republic of China's most valuable ally when it comes to building out its AI? Um, which I think is a very interesting question. And, you know, let's try to keep it conversational. We have about 45 minutes. Not everyone has to answer every question. So whoever wants to just dive in um, and, and, and uh, weigh in on this question. I mean, does China even have an ally in AI? Maybe it doesn't. Paul, I see you. Oh, you're, you're on mute now. Oh, I am? And now you are not, not on mute. You're good. You're good. United States is the answer. Um, and it's the answer because the microchips that power the supercomputers that crunch all this stuff are all made in the United States. A huge amount of the Chinese talent is trained in the United States. China, American companies have trained a, a large number of the people who have created the sort of facial recognition contractors that now sell into these places. Um, and I mean, I think it's a hard question for the United States, but something you have to think about where, I mean, I, I, you know, there is a degree to which uh, the United States is supplying the kind of building blocks for these things and training people who go back and, and, and do use them that way. And as an open society, the United States has a different set of parameters uh, for how it should treat people um, and what it should do. But it is also something to think about. Um, 
you know, that, and I think we should be very open, open eyed about that and clear eyed about that. To add to what Paul said, I think one of the greatest challenges really that we face is in our university sector and people are grappling with that problem right now. Um, the expansion of technology, the, the category we used to call dual use technology, technologies with civilian applications, but that can also be easily applied to military purposes or, or military-like purposes, has grown so much in recent years. It's very hard to distinguish the basic mathematics and the algorithmic science that go towards beneficial uses of AI from those that can be applied towards truly chilling ones. And unfortunately, a lot of this research is occurring in American universities with the best of intentions, but without thinking through the social consequences of, of, of what these collaborations might lead to when you work with a Chinese partner. And it may not just be the Chinese partner themselves, but it might be the, the party cadre behind the curtain who ultimately is governing how the data that's collected in that enterprise might be used or the actual application of, of the technologies and the breakthroughs that are made in what might on its face seem really benign. Yeah, um, I, I will twist a little bit to say that the Chinese government's biggest ally in, in, in constructing this kind of digital social engineering are actually Chinese internet users, the Chinese population, because we are I mean, as a consumers in any other society, we're all willingly participating in this regime uh, uh, by in exchange of convenience and service, right? Google, the iPhone, you submit your data, and then uh, you get your service. But in China, you submit your data and you get your service from WeChat, from Tencent, from Alibaba, from Baidu, from Weibo, from WeChat, everything. People embracing that kind of advance of, of technology bringing the, the the ease for their life but with the price to participate in this regime you submit your data your privacy and now become this thing called digital person now which is a set of numbers but in some it's a knowledge about you it has a prediction power over you but in the hands of somebody else in this case is in the party state. And, but they're collaboratively building it. That's why I say this is kind of a digital totalitarianism has certain legitimacy of it. And that's the most horrible part. Great. Uh, the next, uh, the, the top question uh, is what are the prospects of China maintaining and expanding its social credit system? And what are the long-term implications of the system for the world? I want to add that um, when it was first reported, people were horrified. And then um, there was a little bit of a shift as, as journalists based in China, foreign correspondents looked into the social credit system and looked at how it was playing out in reality on the ground. And, um, and then there was a bit of a shift, like it's not as, as Orwellian as everyone thinks. Um, it, it's more of a, a, a sort of like a, the same way that we have a, a credit rating on our finances if we don't pay our credit cards on time, that kind of thing. Um, and I feel like that conversation never then continued. Um, and so I'm curious, uh, along with that question, whether you, each of you guys ha have a thought about where things stand with the social credit system, is it time to sort of migrate back to a more Orwellian view of it uh, or not? And no, I know, Paul, you've written a lot about it. Bethany, you've also written a lot about it. So if either of you guys want to jump in first. 
I'll, I'll say just something briefly about it, which is, I, you know, when it comes to the social credit system, I think it's important to remember that, that part of what's happening here is the creation of blacklists, uh, you know, uh, people who can't be, they can't buy, you know, plane tickets or they can't do this or they can't do that or, you know, and this um, is, I, I think, kind of a little bit perhaps immediately separate from the conversation about AI, at least for now. I mean, that's... Um, a sort of a way of control uh, that the Chinese government has shown a lot of interest in. And I think that's something that we're, we're seeing a little bit more often now that used abroad as well. Um, I, I still feel like there's, there's a, we're still quite far from, you know, mass data collection and, and artificial intelligence, you know, being used to power this. Um, but I, you know, go over to Paul on that. Super high tech, right? I mean, that's the, the thing is, this is a bureaucratic and legal solution to a set of problems, and it's being it's imposed in a way that we would think would violate rights all over the place. Um, but at the end of the day, there's not that much technology pouring into it. And people thought there would be in part because there was this idea that Alibaba's um, credit products would be linked into the system. And that ultimately, Alibaba started kind of uh, taking its powers and using it to kind of give out privileges like, you know, visa free uh, travel to Thailand and angered uh, the central bank, which was in charge of the whole thing to begin with. And so so they got, kind of got booted from the whole project, which definitely dumbed it down a little bit, I think. Uh, but, I, you know, I, I talked to somebody in the NDRC at a local province uh, one time, and he said the, the extent of the social credit uh, efforts for them was literally um, calling up uh, local sort of officials around the province and asking them for data on people and getting back spreadsheets that were completely disorganized, random Excel sheets with like rows, you know, completely non-standardized and then having six people in a room go through and try to like actually order them. And then three quarters of the time when they'd call the officials, the officials would do what they do to journalists, which is say, who are you? Oh yeah, let me, let me call you back in a little bit and then never pick up your phone call again. So, I mean, that there is that side of it as well. So. On the next, the, uh, the other top, oh, sorry, go ahead, Xiao. Yeah, I, I think I mentioned that in my uh, talk, but I'm just really illiterate. The, 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 the scenario I'm describing is more the Chinese state now is aspired to, right? But the China's social credit system does have the potential and it's already have a characteristic of large scale, all encompassing data and state ownership. Well, I did mention the data's new oil, but so in the Chinese, many Chinese research newspapers, policy newspapers saying, well, it is a not, if, if it's a strategic resource as the oil, then the data should be in the state hand. That should be owned by the state. But in China, it should be owned by the party state, by the authoritarian state. I also want to say a word about what Paul mentioned, oh, the Chinese uh, technology right now is not that great. They're, 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 cru they're uh, uh, crude. Uh, they're not so sophisticated, yes, but also they are effective. You don't need to be precise. You can make a lot of mistakes that also have a chilling effect over the people. Think of the Pentecost, uh, uh, the, uh, they, they, the people only just need to know the idea of their data being collected, where they are potentially being watched. Then they will watch themselves. They'll behave themselves. That's what the state wants, and that is the technology can achieve and achieving now. To, yes, go ahead, Glenn. 
I wonder if I can add, I think sometimes we're looking for it in the wrong places too. The social credit system is, is a particular set of initiatives that have largely civil purposes. But we know from the application of analogous technologies in Xinjiang that much, much more actually is being done. And this is really a parallel system. It is the social credit system that's sort of under the rug. Uh, where they are measuring, does this person go to mosque? Does this person drink alcohol? Does this person wear a beard? Uh, at, a, at a profound level of specificity and making real choices that have consequences for individuals' lives. Um, that is a social credit system in and of itself. To what extent has any of this changed? Um, sorry, I looked, Paul, uh, there seems to be a little bit of a delay, but go ahead. Wait. And I just wanted to say that the specific social credit system, I think that we refer to is the combination of the NDRC and the PVOC doing this kind of broad civilian set of checks. But there are massive amounts of blacklists run by the Chinese police um, that look exactly like what we describe when we say talk about the social credit systems that are utterly opaque and used in Xinjiang and elsewhere. And so, yeah, there's, you know, there if there's a very specific thing that is the social credit system is defined by the 13th five-year plan and all the rest, but then there's, you know, sort of a, the, the sort of philosophy which trickles down across uh, the security state. So, yeah. Great. I'll go on to the next question, which is what can the world do to help the groups being persecuted in China through advancements in AI? Should the world be concerned with China uh, using its influence and advancements in AI to infringe on human rights outside of China? The latter question, I think we all think I think the answer is yes, <laughs> one word answer. So let's focus on the, uh, the former question, which is what can the world do? Can the world do anything to help these groups? Can I, can I jump in yes. here? Um, I mean, yes, thing, things can be done. It's, you know, it's, it's a very, it's, it's, it's a difficult question and there, there are no simple answers. And so, you know, um, for example, just sort of piggybacking off of what Paul said, and I agree with that, you know, who's, who's the biggest ally in helping trying to build this kind of system? Well, it's the U.S., not the, gov not the U.S. government specifically promoting these kinds of systems in China, but the, the use of, you know, U.S. technology. And so we see the U.S. government now, I mean, just a couple of days ago, you know, going one step further in, uh, you know, trying to in, in placing more export restrictions on semiconductors and, um, you know, cracking down on this on the ways that these chips are being used. However, and you know, there are we could talk about this topic for a long time, um, but a, a sort of simplistic way to look at it is that if the U.S. had wanted to prevent China from being able to develop these systems on its own, they should have done this numerous years ago. Right now, you know, to implement this kind of a block, even if, if they're able to do it effectively, because China now is technologically advanced enough, it is not going to stop them. It might delay them, but it's, you know, they will be able to get there on their own, get, get there on their own. And, uh, you know, what it might do is in the long run force China into becoming self-reliant in the development of advanced technologies. So if the US were, were to have done something, it should have done something earlier than it did if you believe that that is the kind of correct approach. Uh, well, where does that leave us? I mean, there's a range of options. And this is really just a smaller version of the larger question that we're trying to ask about China, which is what do you do in the world's large, second largest or largest economy, you know, one of the world's two most powerful countries, decides to go down an authoritarian route both domestically and abroad, what do you do? And there are, you know, that that is a question that we're really trying to face uh, for the first time, you know, in in 
in this a country that's within the system, the international system, uh, you know, it's a member of the UN and, you know, the World Trade Organization and the World Bank and all these things, it's integrated in our system that's choosing to go down this route. So, you know, there's a whole debate right now. Do you kick them out of those institutions? Do you try to weaken its power from those institutions? Should we try to have um, more, should we sanction them? Should we, you know, tariffs to try to contain them? Should we you know, what should you do? Uh, and because at the end of the day, because they're so powerful, there are very high costs. And a fundamental question that we have to ask ourselves is, how much are we willing to pay? Like, how much are we willing to sacrifice to try to prevent them from doing this? That's our question that we have to address. Glenn, I saw you nodding there. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And that's what makes the China challenge so difficult. Um, over the last 40 years, so many of our systems in the United States, economic, academic, otherwise have been deeply integrated with China. And so figuring this out, writing new rules is very painful. And whether you call it decoupling or not, or unraveling, there is a certain amount of hard thinking and hard choices that have to be made about what we're willing to engage in in the future and, and what we're complicit in. Uh, and uh, hopefully this conference will help focus uh, some of those questions and thinking on, in that regard. Well, at the start of the, so, go ahead, Xiao. Um, I just want to add uh, some specifics, which is China, of course, right now is not uh, in every uh, area under AI technology uh, surpassing the United States. Uh, but uh, in certain uh, uh, areas, facial recognition is one, uh, 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 voice recognition, uh, uh, those sort of uh, security-related uh, 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 technology using AI, uh, exactly the type of thing we're talking about, China is ahead. And we also know China is ahead on the 5G, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, only with that kind of 5G bandwidth and speed, that those new generation of data transmission and the technology can be used. And the whole world needs that, and China's at least a year ahead. Um, secondly, uh, how does those Chinese technology uh, company uh, uh, goes ahead? Uh, we had some in the past, some kind of uh, 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 sort of uh, arrogance, but ignorance, think, oh, the authoritarian regime, uh, they cannot innovate. People are just listening to their leaders but not entirely true in the technology field, in the social economical life, in the area they're being allowed and encouraged to be competitive. In the Chinese tech industry is highly innovative and competitive, but it's also highly guided by the state. And there are hundreds or thousands of different startups on certain things that state wants them to do, such as uh, AI technology on surveillance. But once certain companies of technology becoming take ahead, state invest everything to it and then push that company to the top, and then promoting that strategically through their state power around the world. Look at Huawei, look at Alibaba, look at Tengxin, uh, and look at TikTok. Uh, and these are the authoritarian regime particularly are doing the pattern, which actually, in fact, Europe, United States doesn't have that kind of mechanism. Well, we've been so, um... I think this last question was sort of what can the world do to help persecuted groups? Just following on that theme of sort of questions that are seeking solutions, uh, one of the questions um, upvoted is how can we use AI to reverse the trend of authoritarianism? And of course, at the start of this, um, this discussion, um, 
Secretary Rice was talking about the, the fact that technology is neutral. We've spent uh, more than an hour talking about all the scary things that uh, China uh, can potentially do. Um, but can AI help in this uh, ideological battle? I don't know if anyone wants to step in. I wonder, Paul is smiling. Glenn is also sort of, Paul, go ahead. The answer, I mean, like there's, uh... I don't know what you would do. I mean, my one thought is that if you're in the United States or a place like that, you set norms and you build technologies that, and you work on rules that create a world that you want to see. Um, and that's the best way to push back against these things. And so there were, like after we did our, our, our sort of automated ethnic profiling story, there were interesting changes where for instance, IBM came in and, and they were doing, you know, they were, they were, they did have a system that was sort of identifying people's races as it was doing a bunch of other things. So it wasn't specifically targeting uh, any given minority, but all you had to do is search for a, a specific uh, race and you would be then sort of automating uh, uh, sort of ethnic profiling, right? It's, it's, it's just one more step. And so seeing how abusive China was with the technology set a precedent and set off an alarm bell that allowed other parts of the world to realize, oh my goodness, that really is something that we want to stay away from and to change course. And so I think that's probably the best way to do it is to look at what's happening in China, learn from it, and, and know that if this is how this technology is being used by China, one day it could be used where you live. And so to make rules and make sure it doesn't get used that way where you are, you know? Glenn, uh, I, I see you raise your hand. I just want to just add, though, very quickly after Paul's comments that uh, that reminds me of what Secretary Rice said at the beginning, which is I don't want us to out to China, China. Right. Um, but yes, Glenn. Yeah, I think um, the tendency when we when we confront these kinds of questions with respect to AI is to reach for technological solutions. And actually, I think that that's a really limited view. It's too limited. Uh, the best solutions lie in really traditional categories like human rights, democracy, governance, civil society. It's building up those things which will help individual countries and people in countries around the world, including China, um, push back on, on the more negative aspects of, of AI and ensure that the better aspects prevail. And so really it's getting back to basics and not treating this as a problem of technology or unique to technology. It really comes down to broader issues of human rights. Xiao, and then I, I see Bethany also wants to contribute. Yeah, I actually want to uh, differ with my co-panelists a little bit. And actually I want to differ with uh, Secretary Rice a little bit to say that technology is not neutral. Some technologies are more in favor of the democracy and freedom, and some te technologies are more in favor of authoritarianism. Uh, internet at the beginning we all know we have the digital promise of freedom information freedom organization and giving the wireless people voices and we're embracing it as a liberal technology but the new generation of digital technology which means big data artificial intelligence is in favor of authoritarianism because in favor of centralization of data and data processing and that is a much bigger challenge we are facing in Again, not only in China, in every part of the world, but China, because of the large internet market, large data, so can train the algorithms better, and it has its own comparative advantage, and that's where the threat is. Bethany. Um, to uh, add, you know, to the idea of 
having our own standards and making sure that we have a strong civil society and that we have our own standards for technology which prevent it from being abused. That can't just happen on you know a country by country level. There needs to be a really strong multilateral effort to establish that as like a, a major global norm. And so you're seeing more people talking about creating some kind of multilateral group or body or institution that's designed to address these issues of technology and, um, and digital issues for the 21st century uh, and to create strong multilateral agreements and norms about how to use them um, so that it's not just one country or you know several countries setting their own. The, the problem, of course, right now uh, is that the U.S. Uh, is, seems unlikely um, under the current administration to be interested in creating a brand new multilateral body organization or agreement. Um, so that seems, you know, it's, it's not something that seems very realistic. Uh, if there were to be a, a second term of a Trump president, uh, presidency, so, you know, perhaps that's something that is going to have to be left up to EU, South Korea, Japan and other countries that are both, um, you know, highly technologically developed and also interested in pursuing democratic ideals. Uh, we have a question from Ambassador Michael McFall, a very good one. Would any Chinese communist leader have used AI for autocracy the same way she has had, has done so? Or is there something unique about Xi, his views and his policies? I, I, okay, can I say that I, I don't think that it's it's she in particular. I mean, if you look, you know, uh, uh, what Paul mentioned about and what we've already, and what everyone here has already talked about the the Great Firewall. I mean, that was already under construction before Xi Jinping um, came to power. You know, I mean, two thousand nine, two thousand eight. These were really important years, and that was under Hu Jintao. Um, you know, AI is, is is a separate conversation. But you know, if we're talking about cre thinking creatively. Um, you know, going beyond what the West has thought about and what the West has done in terms of, um, you know, the, the digital world and how to harness that and contain that and also use that. I don't think that that's unique to, to Xi Jinping. I think that, that what she has brought is he's a big thinker and he has been willing to, you know, he he's probably brilliant and has been able to see, to look at the geopolitics of the world and see that China was not taking advantage of many of its latent strengths. And he has been able to create a vision and to draw that together and to say, we can do this and create that political will to do things like create the Great Firewall, which in you know the year 2000, we were all you know giggling about, ha 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 ha, nailing Jello to the wall. You know, but but he was like, no, we can we can actually make this for real and make it happen. And he's been successful at that. And I think that that is you know what has made him strong. Uh, but but it, it could have been another leader to do that. Glenn, you were quite eager to jump in. Yeah, I think the impulse to control information is an old one, and it has been there throughout the history of the party. This is not new, but I think she is a game changer in the sense that he adds a fundamental new urgency to the problem. And as Bethany suggested, he came to it with a, with a strategic framework in mind. And he's pushing that out across a range of issues. Um, and, and this ultimately gets back to, to, um, to something that's very much in Ambassador McFall's backyard. It's his analysis of what went wrong in the Soviet Union and how the Chinese Communist Party might very much have been on in in late stage socialism and communism and something drastic needed to be done to reverse that trajectory. And so to an extent, it really is down to Xi, but he is energizing a very old impulse. Paul Arshel, no thoughts on that? Additional thoughts? Well, let me just uh, say, I basically agree with my previous panelists that uh, uh, any authoritarian leader will 
take this opportunity of a new wave of technology in favor of them uh, 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 to uh, gain the control. It's not just a she. Uh, I, I defer a little bit to say that uh, she personally uh, uh, is, is a, a brilliant, a big thinker. Uh, I wouldn't use that word to describe him, but I would describe him as very deterministic, has a sense of a mission to keep Chinese Communist Party empowered and to uh, 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 do everything out of his power that to uh, uh, to keep the Chinese Communist Party lasting uh, uh, its monopoly of political power in China. It's not only just, as he said, for China's uh, prosperity and strong and wealth. It's also out of his own fear. He is not a, old, uh, a, sort of a dominant uh, a power figure like Mao Zedong or even Deng Xiaoping. He lives in fear and he cannot move out of his office. He cannot uh, step out of his office without fearing that his political enemy and all he's doing is the policy reversing the political progress history of Chinese modern history that can lead him any good ending. Therefore, he's doubly deterministic, yeah, uh, committed to hold on power, use everything he can that technology is helping him right now down to the rest of the bureaucracy. And that's one of the things we've seen with a lot of the blunders and issues, I think, is that everybody's terrified. And you get this kind of bureaucratic overrun where because she says something, you can't possibly, you know, not do everything she says to the absolute maximal. And so people do this um, and, it, and it becomes a kind of bad, a negative feedback loop where things get out of control. It reminds me of like, uh, you know, in Gulag Archipelago when, um, I think it's, maybe it's Stalin who speaks and everybody claps and nobody wants to be the first to stop clapping. And so everybody just keeps clapping for, you know, sort of 10 minutes, 15, 20. And then finally the first person who stops does go to the gulag. Um, but uh, so in that sense, I always think that like with the technology that's available, we're very lucky that the Chinese sort of government and especially the security state does not look like the Stasi in East Germany and looks a lot more like the Soviet Union in some ways with the way that the fear and the bureaucracy sort of misfires and malfunctions and kind of, you know, is crude and 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 that, as Xiao said, it's still very effective and it does, in some ways it doesn't matter, it still imposes fear over everybody, but it is like, you know, you can, the people who are maybe the most um, potentially dangerous to she are not necessarily the people who are going down in this new surveillance state. It's kind of arbitrary who's going down. We have a question about um, potential collaboration. How can we make sure we avoid a race to the bottom and collaborate with China on AI safety, particularly as large platforms are working on getting to artificial general intelligence? I'm not quite sure how quickly we're gonna get to that general intelligence, but uh, the gist of the question in general, you all know, can can we collaborate? I know, Bethany, you talked about uh, international system as, as being really the only solution, but um, bilateral? Anybody? A point of learning, you know, I mean, you, you, you should collaborate, but you should, if you're collaborating, make sure that certain key ethical steps are being taken. You know, we looked at studies with bioinformatics and things where very basic things like informed consent weren't done. And so if you are collaborating, just make sure that it's all in the, in the sort of, you know, it's above board and that, that there's a back and forth. There's always cultural back and forth when you have multinational teams working on things like artificial intelligence. And the best thing to do is to learn from, um, you know, say Chinese researchers and have Chinese researchers learn from you. And in that way, kind of improve this sort of outlook and understanding. Um, although I will say, despite that, I think probably 
there are plenty of people who would, you know, join say a company that does do facial recognition in Xinjiang or something like that. So I don't, I, beyond that, I don't know, but I think at least you can try to teach as you, as you work together, cutting each other off is rarely the answer, uh, you know. Xiao. Um, I, of course, there are many things the U.S. needs to co collaborate with China. Uh, global warming is for one, and and, and many others. Um, but in terms of general AI, yeah, that's a bigger topic. Well, what about a machine thinking you know, faster than not only faster than us, but more intelligent than us, etc. But let's go back a little bit, think about history. History is not going to repeat. Uh, it's not just the metaphor, but let's think about history. When the nuclear power being discovered, right? I studied physics for 10 years, and my hero was those set of physicists from the early 20th century. Uh, they are, um, you know, invented the quantum mechanics and then went to the build, uh, some of them. Uh, 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 part of the building the atomic bombs. For what? The Second World War. Uh, there are some of them are in Nazi side trying to building it. Some of them are in a Allied side in the United States trying to building it. And afterwards, are they collaborating? They were not. But after the war, there are also physicists led by Einstein uh, calling for a peaceful usage of the nuclear power. But AI is that kind of a power. General AI does have this kind of power to influence the world and geopolitics and all our people's life, in, including the fate of humankind. So talking about collaboration, we need a common value and a standard. But also during the Cold War, uh, US and Soviet Union on nuclear disarmament, they're talking. They were, they were the treaties. There were, there were mechanisms. There were both sides had people to try to preventing this most disastrous uh, result of humankind. So think about those things in history, what technology can do. Now we can think about what we do with China. In terms of a little bit looking at um, sticking to the theme of the what uh, international actors and other states can do. One question is, has EU's uh, sort of approach to data security and, and GDPR, the privacy legislation around that, um, can that sort of interrupt um, some of the policies that we see in, in China, at least in terms of its export, right, um, at the international stage? Anyone have any thoughts on that? Yeah, the great challenge with respect to China is that China can be very good about announcing the right sounding policies and the right sounding framework documents that appeal to all of, uh, you know, the, the better instincts in the room and make it seem like, oh, maybe things are changing and collaboration won't be as problematic as we might imagine it could be. Uh, but then ultimately you fall back to the root question of uh, how specific and enforceable are these statements? And then you fall back on the Chinese on the Chinese court system on the fact that there's no separation of powers on the fact that, you know, under uh, national security legislation, the Chinese party state can swoop in and grab whatever it likes and essentially do whatever it likes. And so the question really is, what do these documents mean? We have to look at them very carefully. We can't simply mirror image 
that because a, a Chinese official comes to us with a document and it's called a law and it says the right sounding sorts of things that it will be treated in a Chinese context in the same way that it would be treated in Brussels or Berlin. Um, we need to understand that China is a little bit different in this regard. Cool. I'll go on to the next question, unless anyone has something else. Um, this is a little bit different. Let me pull it up. I lost it a little. There's so many questions here. How will, yes, here's the one. How, it's, it's blockchain related. How will China's planned central bank's digital currency impact digital authoritarianism or China's geopolitical position? Anyone know anything much? Glenn, yes, you're here. You're in Silicon Valley. Yeah, this is actually something we're going to start working on in our China's Global Sharp Power project. So um, the short answer is stay tuned. Uh, but the longer, a slightly longer answer might be it's it's too early to tell to quote Zhou Enlai. Uh, but on the other hand, um, there is the possibility just as China is exporting some of its AI stack to authoritarian regimes around the world, that its digital currencies and electronic payment stack will be similarly exported to nations around the world to give them and China to tie them more closely to China and for geostrategic purposes to give China a way to circumvent the Swiss, the SWIFT system and the US financial system, which essentially like our technology export control system has them in a vice grip. So this is an end run potentially around that. Um, and that is part of the strategic play that's happening here. Now, also in a domestic sense, it gives the Chinese government a fabulous tool of surveillance. They instantaneously know all of your purchases, where you've been, what your habits are, and that all could get fed into that mountain of data, which they don't quite know what to do with yet, but maybe one day they'll figure it out. Great. That it's, um, it is interesting the degree to which, you know, most there's, a, a huge amount of payments in China are already digital digital in terms of uh, on WeChat and on Alipay. Uh, and in, in both cases, it's very rare for the police to actually access those uh, that data very like they have so much other data that oftentimes they don't actually uh, use it. And I was always sort of amazed that, that that was not a kind of key part of how they tracked. But every from everything I've seen it, and from everything I know about sort of sources in the companies, that's not the biggest part. Uh, so it's kind of it's almost again, that sort of too much data. It's like you need to get to a point where you can, I mean, it will be terrifying when, when they can process it, but, but when will that be? Don't know. Okay. We have one last question. I like the specificity of this and it is a huge issue. Um, I personally think so we'll, we'll have this question and then I'm going to go back to rounding out the thought about authoritarianism versus um, totalitarianism. But, the question is, will cutting off U.S. semiconductor equipment exports to SMIC have a material adverse impact on Chinese development of AI, or will it simply harm U.S. companies? How important is semiconductor technology to the Chinese military, and will restricting its export make a difference or not? Um, for example, the Russians have strong military capabilities, but they don't have advanced chip technology. Ah, the semiconductors. Well, Paul, you're in Taiwan. I don't know how closely you've been looking at that. I'm sure... Actually, each one of you have thoughts on this. Journey into tech started in semiconductors. So um, it's fascinating, but a little bit can be tedious. I guess the thing is, if you really actually succeeded in cutting off these semiconductors, uh, and it's in particular semiconductor manufacturing that matters so much within China, um, because there's plenty of very sophisticated companies that design the chips, it's actually making those chips that's the, the difficult part. Um, 
and uh, and so SMIC is the main uh, producer of chips within China, and there's a few other smaller ones, but it's it's really the thing that's closest. And and so so desperate were, were, was the Chinese leadership for chip technology when they created SMIC that they actually let its creator bring in two churches uh, to Shanghai and set them up. Um, you know, he was a, he was a Christian uh, Taiwanese uh, Taiwanese American, I think, from uh, Texas. Um, and so, so this is really fundamental to everything that a modern military does, that a modern economy needs. Um, and if the U.S. were actually able to completely cut off China from all of these things, it would create a massive set of problems. Um, the question is, can you that? There's a million workarounds. A lot of these things are, are already kind of co commercially available and, and commodity in some ways. And so you're never going to really get a perfect solution. So in cutting off only partially, how much do you kind of sort of, in, you know, push companies to kind of create new uh, uh, workarounds? Or do you just sort of force, you know, China could nationalize TSMC's fab in uh, in China tomorrow and try to learn from that. It could arrest every single TSMC employee working in China, question them and try to you know develop the next thing. I mean, there's a bunch of really draconian things China could do if it felt like its back was truly pressed against a wall on this stuff. So, I mean, I guess it's to be said, I think it's something we'll see fights over for the foreseeable future, but I don't think we're going to see any kind of end solution one way or the other. And I think we'll see kind of these calculated risks happening in both ways. But the U.S. and kind of going down that neoliberal road of globalization exported a lot of capability and we're seeing China China's rise kind of pushed some of that back the other way uh, with the, for instance, TSMC building out a, a fab in the United States. Glenn. A, a, big, a big part of that is human capital too. I mean, shutting off the technology valve from the United States is part of it, but China has been very aggressive about recruiting engineers from TSMC, the mid-level people who run chip fabs, the people who can ensure that processes are done with a requisite level of quality so that you get good product out the other end. And really that's where China has been struggling. And so China is pulling out all the stops to recruit these people from Taiwan. And so a, a, an important part of, of the equation is making sure then that our partners in this technology supply chain are also on board with whatever initiatives we undertake. Yeah, I mean, Taiwan, it's, it's actually quite a nice place to end in terms of our conversation, because I know that Stanford is going to have a series of, of uh, uh, panels on Taiwan uh, coming up next. Um, it'll be on their website. So I think we'll just end with that, going back to that question. It, it, after the past two hours, I don't know if I was listening, I'd be feeling like this is edging towards more totalitarianism and not uh, uh, authoritarianism. But uh, what's everyone's thinking on that? Uh, your final thought, uh, Bethany. Well, I think it's pretty clear that in Xinjiang, we do have something that's, you know, totalitarian. That doesn't mean that it's like super skillful totalitarian, uh, you know, with IJOP, like they're doing things. Are they actually predicting who is going to go out into the streets and protest the Chinese government? No, but they have, you know, everyone is absolutely terrified out of their minds and is afraid to pray in, you know, the people are afraid to go into a closet and pray, uh, you know, for various reasons. And, you know, a lot of that is, is a different kind of surveillance. You know, it's that, the, you know, Chinese government employees are living in their home, talking to their children, threatening to take away their children and put them in a camp. And some of that has to do with this, all this massive surveillance. Uh, yes, you know, what we have in Xinjiang is absolutely totalitarian. Uh, you know, I, I tend to disagree with people when they say that the rest of China is totalitarian. It's it's like mostly not. Um, 
And I also, you know, would disagree with people who say that, you know, Xinjiang is a, is, a, is a lab and they're, you know, developing new technologies there to export to the rest of China. That's not how it works, really. Uh, but we, we certainly have, you know, something that is, who, who was it who said this? I can't remember. But, you know, one of the reasons probably that, you know, the CCP um, authoritarian or totalitarian model in the Mao era did not succeed is because they didn't have the technology uh, you know, to, to really bring it forward and to really make, make it successful. And in a lot of ways, they now do. And I'm not even talking about AI necessarily, but, you know, other more basic kinds of technology. Um, so that's what you have in Xinjiang. And I, I don't think it's going to get smaller. I think it's going to get bigger. I think it is going to expand. Yeah, that was Secretary Rice who was saying in the beginning that um, some of the technology out there would have been the dream of 20th century uh, governments, uh, such as the East German Stasi. Um Xiao, what are your final thoughts on on which system, which should we call it? Well, I think China is well on its way to a new kind of totalitarianism. It is still totalitarianism because the state has the capacity and actually means to control every aspect of the people's life. But it's a new kind. It's not the mouse China. It's not a fascist Italy or Nazi Germany or Soviet Union. Um, it is a society with largest internet technology in the market, has a, uh, you know, one of the largest world economy, has all the interactive uh, uh, links uh, from, to the rest part of the world, and has now gained a new uh, ability to firmly control its people, but develop this economy, the people having economic opportunities, people have to pay their mortgage, people have to work hard, and the people life but is still improving. Uh, and technology uh, sectors is competitive. Uh, um, and the technology also brings the society some kind of security uh, uh, and delivering a, a lot of things, despite uh, 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 the new situation and all the challenges. So. But talking about the fundamental human freedom and dignity, talking about the quality of life the Chinese people deserve to and really aspire to for the last two centuries, then we say that current China is firmly on its way to its opposite, which is a digital totalitarian, uh, totalitarianism, it's a, which is a threat to the globe. Paul. Kind of echo what Bethany said a bit. Um, you know, the the totalitarian instincts, in the sense, there is a destination to this. You know, at the end, if you get enough technology, if you're sophisticated enough, you can know everything everybody's doing and control them perfectly. Uh, you know, we're not even close to that yet. But technology doesn't actually have to do what it says it's doing to be effective a lot of times. And so to kind of come back to this idea of the panopticon effect, if you can scare the living daylights out of people and convince enough people that you know exactly what's going to happen, uh, then you can intimidate them into sort of doing whatever you want and, and controlling them completely and controlling every aspect of their lives completely. And there is already a totalitarian solution within a heavily authoritarian state, which is China, which they can deploy when they want, wherever they want. And we've seen it happen in Xinjiang. We see it come out of the bag in Inner Mongolia recently when there were protests there. We've seen it in Tibet. We see it in other areas where people get upset. I think we're going to start seeing a, a version of it in, in Hong Kong over time as well. 
and they know how to do it. They, they know how to set up checkpoints. They know how to put up the cameras. They know how to arrest enough people. They know how to monitor your internet, send people to knock at your door if you say the wrong things on social media, such that enough people are scared that people won't do anything that could potentially threaten or you know sort of shake the boat politically. Now, that is not the reality that is lived by people in Shanghai. People in Shanghai feel a certain set of privilege and a certain amount of ownership over the country and uh, you know, don't feel like they're in that place. But if the people in Shanghai got really upset about something, they would find themselves in that place. So I guess I see like basically China's an aspiring totalitarian state with a, a sort of you know geographically limited option to deploy totalitarian technology where it needs. And, and, and backing that is, of course, a massive amount of, of policing and bureaucracy that would have to go in. I mean, you know, you, the way that Xinjiang works is you have people, you have police on every street corner running facial recognition scanners. If you don't have those people, the technology is useless. So, so you need the people and you need the other side, but with those people, you do have that option. Um, so we can already see one version, one very crude version of techno-totalitarianism. And what we'll see as we go on is a much more scalable, sophisticated version of that. Um, yeah, so that's my feeling about it. Glenn. I'll keep it short um, in, in view of time. Um, I think that um, the ingredients for totalitarianism are there. The logic of totalitarianism is baked into the regime. But the great genius of the Communist Party for the last 40 years is it's known well enough to get out of the way of the Chinese people in a great many spheres of life, to liberate their energies, to produce. And, and, and they are responsible for the incredible development of China for the last 40 years. Had China been totalitarian, that would not have occurred. And the challenge for the party is to keep that going, um, to stay out of the way. But unfortunately, demographic trends, economic growth slowing, and various other factors go are, are going to make it harder for the party. And so I think it's going to have to increasingly reach for that authoritarian, totalitarian toolkit that it's been developing in places like Xinjiang. Uh, and that, uh, that, that's not a happy ending. Glenn, Xiao, Bethany, and Paul, thank you so much for joining the conversation for the last couple of hours. It's been a really wonderful talk. 